Well, good morning. It is great to be back with all of you today. I missed you last week. I was gone on vacation, and Fred Douglas did a wonderful job filling in, and thank you for your graciousness towards Fred. Hopefully, you enjoyed his time here. I, I saw when I watched uh, his sermon that he had been here before, but it had been quite a few years, so I'm sure that was fun for him to come back and visit. But my family and I got the opportunity to go camping with my extended family up on the Washington Peninsula, up in Joyce, Washington, near Squim and Port Angeles, and had a wonderful time. It was a little bit windy, but we camped the whole week and got to come home and clean up on late Friday night. And so it's good to be back here. I was, got home and was thinking right away about my sermon and, and being here Sunday with you all, so much so that Friday night I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night and I had had a dream. In my dream, I had come in and I'd had a meeting with someone Sunday morning, and as I came into the sanctuary, as the service was starting, I opened my Bible and I realized I had not written a sermon. I had nothing prepared except that I knew who we were talking about, and that was it. And I remember feeling so frantic, like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to preach something, so we'll see what the Lord does. Thankfully, I have a sermon for you this morning. I did write one. We're not winging it, but we'll see what the Lord does with it still. So as we jump in, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your word and the opportunity to be here, uh, to sit under your word as a body of believers this morning. Lord, what power there is in the scriptures that you have given us. What a gift they are for our lives to lead, to guide us, to convict us, to teach us what it looks like to be your disciples. So, Lord, as we look at this hero of faith this morning, I pray that you would stir something in each one of us who you've brought here today, Lord, that we would reflect you more and more in our lives. So we praise you for this time, and we praise you for your word. It's in Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen. Well, back during the Old Testament, which most of the heroes of faith that we've been looking at have been out of the Old Testament— it was easy to identify a false god. False gods were prevalent throughout the Old Testament times, and they usually had names like Baal or Moloch or Ashtoreth or Artemis. And these were constantly a temptation for the people of Israel, a people who were set aside for Yahweh, who were to be God's chosen people, and yet they were continually tempted by these false gods, pulling them away from Yahweh. And while we may not have false gods with the same names being worshipped today, I believe that there are still many false gods that are worshipped today. Even here within our church, there is a temptation for that. In fact, I found a top ten list of false gods in this day and age that I want to share with you because I believe it's relevant for our time today and what we're going to be discussing. So this is what it had, starting at number ten. Education is a false god. Beauty comfort, substance, which could be like drugs or nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, all those would fall under that category. Family can become a false god. Religion can become a false god. Now, religion and God are not the same thing. Trust in God is what we are to do, not in religion as a whole, because religion without God is just an empty shell. So it's not God that is false, but it's the religion can be. Science, sex, money, and the number one false god in this day and age, I believe, is self, the worship of self. 
It's the whole concept of you do you, do what makes you happy, pursue what fulfills you. It's all about you. It's a false god that leads to the same place that the false gods of the Old Testament, like Baal, lead to as well, which is destruction and death. And in our text today, we're going to be looking at a people who have turned from the authenticity of the God Yahweh, the one true God, for a false god. So let's take a look together. If you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to be spending our time in chapter 18 of 1 Kings today. Now, to give you a little bit of information of what's happening before we jump in to verse 20, the first 19 verses of chapter 18, the Lord has sent Elijah to go to King Ahab and to let him know that the Lord will send rain because there's been a drought that Elijah has called upon the Lord for in this land. And so there's been this drought going on. So the Lord tells Elijah, go to King Ahab and let him know that the Lord is going to send rain. Well, Elijah finds a man named Obadiah who at one point had helped hide a hundred of the Lord's prophets in a cave in a cave, so that Queen Jezebel, who is the evil queen, could not kill these prophets of the Lord. So Elijah instructs Obadiah to go and tell King Ahab that Elijah is here. Now Elijah had been in hiding. Jezebel and Ahab had been trying to find him so they could kill him. He's been hiding out and now he's letting him know that he's here. The king comes to meet with Elijah and you can tell how he feels about him because right away what he says to you is, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You see, the trouble that Elijah has caused was that because of their evil, the Lord withheld rain and dews from the land. Now, rain and dew is important for the land, important for the crops, so the fact that it's been withheld was having an impact upon them. Well, Elijah throws down and calls Ahab to gather his prophets, to gather all the false prophets that he and Jezebel have, and to come to a contest with him on Mount Carmel. And that's where we're going to jump in today. So in verse 20 of chapter 18, it tells us, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people. And he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, Ahab has gathered the prophets of Baal and Asherah, a total of 850 false prophets. He goes with them to Mount Carmel. And in verse 20, we see here that not only does he go with the false prophets, but he sends the people of Israel. So not only were the false prophets abounding during this time, but the evil queen and king, they had got the people of Israel to also follow along with the false prophets, to follow these false leaders. And this is a key issue in our text today, that the people of Israel have been swayed away from the authenticity of Yahweh to follow these false prophets, to follow this evil king and queen. So Elijah is going to be speaking to that. And in verse 21, he addresses this issue. He makes this statement, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the picture that Elijah uses in this word with this idea of limping, it makes a picture of the people of Israel being weak, indecisive, and foolish, dabbling in idolatry without the courage of their convictions, seeking to hold on to the traditions of their fathers at the same time, though. 
It's not working. That's not how they're called to be. That's not the covenant that they entered into with the Lord God. And yet, they've been living in this manner, trying to have both their cake and eat it too, trying to say that they serve God, but also want to serve Baal. And so Elijah calls them out. It's time for the people of Israel to make a choice. Who are they going to follow? But the end of 21 where we would hope to see the people of Israel have a resounding call that they're going to follow Yahweh, they don't answer with a word. They refuse to declare an allegiance to the Lord God, which is deeply troubling. It's not what we would hope for the people of Israel. It's not what we would hope as Elijah calls them to follow God. Since the people of Israel won't make a decision, Elijah moves forward to show them the reality of which is the true God. Look at verse 22 with me to see the challenge that he lays out. It says in 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah continues here speaking to the people, showing the one-sided nature of his public stance. He lets them know that he is the only one left there for the Lord There's 450 prophets of Baal, so some of the prophets of Asherah did not come in that total of 850 prophets. He brought the prophets of Baal, but these 450 are here, and there's one prophet for the Lord here. Now, we do know that there are 100 hidden in a cave somewhere, but in this public moment, in this public debate about who is God, Elijah stands alone as the solitary prophet for the Lord. And he lets them know what the contest is going to be. That they're going to take two bulls and they're going to prepare them and they're going to sacrifice them. And whichever God brings down fire upon the sacrifice, that is the true God. And he even lets the prophets of Baal go first. They can have the first choice at the bull. They can prepare it first and lay it upon the wood. And they can call upon the name of their God first. And then Elijah will go second. The people agree. They seem to think this is a great idea. They're in agreement that this will be the competition. And perhaps this seems unfair to Elijah. Not only is he outnumbered 450 to 1, but if you didn't know, the god Baal is considered to be the storm god. And thus it should be no problem for him to bring down fire through lightning. That should be an easy feat for the god of the storms. Well, the challenge has been laid out. The contestants are in agreement as to the rules, and the winner will be considered the true God, the one who can bring fire down from heaven. Let's see how it goes for the prophets of Baal in verse 25. Picking up in verse 25, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, 
And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The prophets of Baal have had their turn. They've taken their bowl and prepared it. They've called upon their God to answer them and to bring down fire. Not a short time. In fact, the text tells us from morning till noon that there is no voice, that no one answered, which is written in this text in a stark contrast to the God of Israel whose words dominate the book of 1 Kings. It even hits a point where Elijah starts mocking them for their calling upon their God and hearing no response, tells them to call out louder, gives them some excuses for perhaps why their God isn't answering. Maybe he's relieving himself. He's going to the bathroom and he's busy. He's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and you need to wake him up. The prophets go as far as not just calling out and making fools of themselves, but even going as far as cutting themselves, hoping that this will cause their God to notice and that he will send fire down upon them. The efforts of the prophets of Baal demonstrate the utter foolishness of Israel abandoning her God, Yahweh, for a non-God such as this. And there is a stark contrast seen here between the false prophets physically harming, harming themselves in desperation to hear their God speak, in desperation to see their God act, and the readiness of Yahweh to speak for Elijah and to show and display his glory. But as we expect, as those who know the story, there is no voice. There is no fire from Baal. No one answered no one paid attention. Well, the prophets of Baal have tried their hardest to no avail, and now it's the prophet Elijah's turn. Look at verse 30 with me. <clears throat> then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah has given the prophets of Baal their chance, and now he calls Israel to turn their attention to him. And he acts in contrast to the crazed prophets who are dancing around, who are yelling and screaming, who are cutting themselves. Elijah is low-key and matter-of-fact in his approach. He starts by repairing the altar that's been thrown down, symbolic for the need of the people of Israel to return and repair their relationship with the Lord. 
We see in verse 31 that he takes the 12 stones, each stone representing one of the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel that God has established. And he sets those up as part of the altar. Then he makes a trench around the altar, the trench that would hold about three and a half gallons of water. And Elijah here goes out of his way to make things difficult for God to win this contest. Not because he doesn't believe that God is able, but because his faith in God is so strong that he wants it to be shown beyond a shadow of a doubt that Yahweh is God. He places the wood on the altar and lays the cut bowl upon the wood. He instructs that four jars be filled with water and poured on top. Now, if you're trying to get a fire started, like last week when I was camping, we made many fires in the evening, I never would start by pouring water on top of my wood. That would be ridiculous, and it would make it almost impossible to start a campfire. And yet, that's what Elijah does. He calls for four jars to be filled and poured on top of the altar. If that wasn't crazy enough, he instructs that they do it a second time. And then he instructs they do it a third time until water runs around the altar and fills the trench. Elijah has prepared the offering for Yahweh, the God of Israel. He has made it as difficult as possible for fire to come upon it and consume the bull, not because he doubts God, but because he knows how great the Lord is. Look with me at verse 36 to see what happens. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So we see here this offering of oblation. I looked it up. It's an evening sacrifice. It's just uh, the, the idea of when the time of that sacrifice would come. So the prophets of Baal had till noon and even went further as they continued to try to get their God to show up. And now as this evening sacrifice time comes, Elijah comes near and he prays a simple prayer. He doesn't perform these dramatic actions. He doesn't have to yell and scream, but he prays a simple prayer. Let it be known this day that you are God. Abraham's, or sorry, Elijah's desires that through this event, God would be glorified and that people would know that he is God. The idea isn't for Elijah to obtain glory or notoriety. It's not for him to be known through the lands because he did something great, but it's for God to be known, for it to be proven that God is the only God and that there is no other. Elijah knows his place in God's kingdom question for us is, do we know our place as well? That God is God and that our role is to bring him honor and glory. Well, Abraham declares in his prayer that all the things that he's done are done at the word of the Lord, showing his obedience to God's word as a priority in his life. You got to remember that Queen Jezebel and King Ahab have been trying to kill Elijah. They've killed all the prophets of Israel who were true to God except for a hundred who have been hiding out in a cave. And now Elijah is face to face with them. There's 450 of the prophets of Baal 
And yet he is willing to stand up for the Lord God because the obedience to God's word is the priority in his life. His safety isn't the priority. His comfort isn't the priority. What is the priority is being obedient to what God tells him to do. And that is why Abraham, sorry, that's why Elijah stands here on Mount Carmel because he wants to be obedient to the Lord and he wants to see a rebellious people experience God in such a way that they would turn their hearts back to him. Well, the Lord responds in verse 38. Look with me at what it says. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So not only, unlike Baal, who didn't answer, who didn't send fire, does God send fire, but it is an all-consuming fire. It not only consumes the bull, which was the purpose of the offering, but it also consumes the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licks up all the water that was in the trench. The four jars they poured over it that would have been at least three and a half gallons of water is all consumed as the Lord brings fire down upon the offering. The Lord answers Elijah's simple request as only the one true God can. Fire falls from heaven at God's command. I love that all of it was consumed, that there was nothing left, no doubt left as to who is the true God. He has shown his might by consuming the entirety of the offering that Elijah presented. And the response of the people of Israel is appropriate in this moment. They fall on their faces and they declare, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah responds by telling the people to seize the prophets of Baal, which they do. And then Elijah, as the Lord's prophet, has the task of slaughtering these false prophets. Now you may wonder, how is that okay? Like he just slaughters 450 men in this text here after we've seen God show his might. And I remember reading this many times throughout my life and thinking, that seems a little dramatic that these prophets would all just be slaughtered. But Queen Jezebel had hated Israel so much that we've already seen her massacre all the prophets of the Lord except those hidden in the cave. And she's replaced the true prophets of Israel with these false prophets of Baal. And these false prophets in worshiping a false god and making offerings to a false god have effectively forfeited their lives. And you may be wondering why. Well, we're still talking about the people of Israel. This is still the nation of Israel that we're dealing with. And we have to go back to the law to see why this was appropriate, why Elijah's response was appropriate here. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 5 through 11, we see instructions in the law for this sin and the consequences that are to follow it. It tells us in Deuteronomy 13, 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall, you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, 
or your son or your daughter or your wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with the stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. You see, we live at a point in time where we've seen the law fulfilled as Christ came. But in this moment when Elijah is dealing with these prophets, they are still under the law that God has given them. And as part of that law, there is a consequence when people choose to worship false gods, when people direct people away from the true God to false gods and offer sacrifices to them. And the consequence is death because God wants to purge that evil out from Israel. And so this is the will of God and the instruction that he has laid out in his perfect law for the people to follow. So Elijah is not acting with vengeance but he is simply following the law of the Lord and placing obedience to the Lord's law as the priority in his life. Now, there is a lot more to the story of Elijah and why he is such a hero of faith. And I would encourage you to get your Bibles and to read 1 Kings and to read all about Elijah. He leads an amazing life of obedience to the Lord. He has ups and downs. He has doubts and questions. And yet God uses him in dramatic and mighty ways. But today, I want to look at how we can apply this to our lives, how we can take this text that seems so far from the reality of what we live in. We're not dealing with prophets on a mountain who are trying to get gods to come down and light the sacrifice on fire. And usually, when I preach, I often provide you with three application points. But as I was preparing this, I felt the Lord say, just have one today, because it's so important. And it comes right from Elijah's charge to Israel, which is this, if the Lord is God, follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote The Cost of Discipleship, was consistent in his bluntness, saying again and again in that book that Jesus Christ calls us to follow him, and if he is God, we have no other option. In his time on earth, Jesus was clear about this too, telling us that we must die to ourselves and follow him. Matthew 16, 24 through 28 tells us, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels, the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You see, in our text today, Elijah is crystal clear. If the Lord is God, follow him. And yet, in our world today, people want to try to soften this. 
They want to say God is patient, God is kind, and God just wants what's best for us. And yes, those things are all true, but what's best for us is that we would wholeheartedly follow God. It can be easy in this day and age to say we're a Christian and only half-heartedly follow the Lord, only give part of our lives to the Lord. I grew up in the church, and maybe you've heard me share about this before, but I grew up really involved in the youth group, and everything I could do, I would go be a part of. And yet I started drifting further away from what my parents taught me to do and to believe. I hadn't made that profession of faith as my own, really. It was something that was a family aspect. And I remember I was going on a trip to Lake Shasta at the end of eighth grade. And my friends and I, we were heavily involved in church. We would say we were Christians, but we were living our lives for ourselves, doing what we wanted to do, doing what would satisfy our desires rather than obeying what God called us to do in his word. And we were down on Lake Shasta, and one night they brought all the boats from this ministry together to bring all the youth together to do some talks and share about faith with the kids who were there. And one of the leaders got up, and he preached a message on Revelation 3 that changed my life forever. And this is what Revelation 3 says. It's a letter to the church in Laodicea. If you're not familiar with it, I think it is so relevant to the day and age that we live in, that this letter could be written to most churches today. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock." If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That letter to the church in Laodicea changed my life because I realized that while I knew who Jesus was, while I went to church, multiple times a week. I had not chosen to let the Lord be truly Lord of my life, and I was living a lukewarm life. I wasn't hot or cold, and according to this text, it says that then the Lord is going to spit you out of his mouth. And I remember sitting at that park thinking, that's me. I'm a lukewarm Christian, and that's not how God calls us to live. Maybe you're like I was in that moment. Maybe you say you're a Christian, but your life doesn't really reflect the character of Christ and his instructions for your life. Perhaps you need to do what I did and repent and submit your entire life to Christ and allow his word to be at the forefront of your life, leading you and guiding you in all that you do. Or perhaps you're here today and you are doing well. You are following Christ authentically. He is Lord of your life. You are not lukewarm, but you are hot Praise be to God. So perhaps today, the encouragement you need isn't for following Jesus with all of your life, 
but it's to have a boldness like Elijah in your faith, to be willing to stand up for Christ, to be willing to call out evil where there's evil, and to proclaim to those around you to stop wavering and for them to follow Christ and to make a commitment. Vernon Grounds, who is the president of Denver Seminary, wrote a story about a friend of his who had an incident that happened while he was in seminary. His friend was playing basketball at a nearby public school, and an elderly janitor waited patiently until the finished playing. He sat there reading his Bible, and one day his friend asked him what he was reading, and the man answered the book of Revelation. Surprised, my friend asked if he understood it. Oh, yes, the man assured him. I understand it. Well, what does it mean? Quietly, the janitor answered. It means that Jesus is going to win. Grounds concludes, that's the best commentary I've ever heard on that book. Jesus is going to win. That's the biblical mindset. Friends, don't let another moment pass without fully following Jesus with your entire being. Give him all of you, every aspect of your life, not just Sundays, not just 30 minutes in your day, perhaps, but your entire being. And I can assure you that he alone is God, that he alone is the Savior, and that Jesus is going to win. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for people like Elijah, who you used in mighty ways. Lord, it wasn't Elijah's might, but it was your might. And so we praise and we worship you today. Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage that we need to live out our faith in this day and age when it at times feels difficult, unpopular, when it's looked down upon, or that we would proudly proclaim that we follow the one true God, even when the odds are 450 to 1, that we would have the courage to live lives boldly proclaiming you are our Savior. Lord, may we see fruit from that as we continue to seek to make disciples here in our community. So Lord, open up the doors for us, prompt us, and give us your words as we go out this day. May we be ever always looking for those opportunities to share about what you've done in our lives and to see people come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We praise you and we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.